We want to continue on this morning in our studies in the Epistle to the Hebrews. I'd like to invite you to turn to chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3. There are a lot of helpful figures of speech that are used throughout the New Testament to signify for us what, what the Christian life really means. Being Christian is such a big concept, it has to be looked at from a n- number of different perspectives. So there are a lot of uh, similes and metaphors and figures of speech and illustrations that are used in the New Testament to fill out our understanding of what authentic Christianity actually is. There's that figure that Jesus used of the vine and the branch. We sustain the same relation, uh, same relationship to Jesus that a branch does to the vine. As he put it, without me, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit. There's the figure of a family. There's the idea of a house. There's the illustration of the bride and bridegroom. These are all helpful. But the metaphor that I think is most apt and helps me the most is that of a pilgrimage, a journey. A pilgrimage has a beginning, it has an end, and it has its ups and downs in between. As John Bunyan put it, uh, with reference to his uh, his pilgrim, sometimes we go on comfortably, sometimes we go on sighingly, but uh, we just uh, keep going on, and it's this thought of going on that keeps us going, if you know what I mean. Now, uh, this is the figure of speech that the writer of the Hebrews uses in, in chapter 3. He contrasts the story of two journeys. There's the story of Israel's journey from Egypt into Canaan under Moses' leadership, and there's the story of our journey from the world into real Christianity under Messiah's leadership. Uh, How did uh, Israel do under Moses' leadership? Badly. They didn't do well at all. How will we do under our Lord's leadership? Well, I leave that question to you. Now, let's... uh, Let's look at chapter 3, verse uh, 7. You'll notice that verse 7 picks up the if clause with which he concluded the the, the, uh, first paragraph in chapter 3. Verse 6 of chapter 3 reads, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. Now, we talked uh, at length about this about this statement last week, and it's important to grasp what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying that we become Christians by holding on to the end. He's saying that if we are authentically Christian, we will hold on to the end. Continuance is not what what produces regeneration. Regeneration always results in continuance. Now, he picks up that if clause again in verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This is the big if, as we said last uh, last week. Ifs are sometimes very important. Uh, you may recall uh, when you were a freshman in college or perhaps in high school when you were studying the course of Western civilization, the story about uh, Philip of Macedonia, Alexander the Great's father, 
who set out to conquer the southern part of Greece, the area where Sparta was located. That area was called Lyconia. And he, uh, he sent a message to the Lyconians saying, actually suing for peace, and he said, uh, if I conquer Lyconia, I will burn Sparta to the ground. And the Lyconians sent a one-word message back, if, if. That's where our word laconic comes from. Uh, a laconic statement is a very brief, terse statement. That's a big if, and this is the big if with which uh, our author introduces this, this paragraph. If you hear his voice, then don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts have always gone astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, if you have a Bible that has footnotes or side notes, you'll note that this is a quotation from Psalm 95. And I need to tell you something of the background of this uh, of this statement and of this quotation. Some of you may not be as familiar with the Old Testament as others. Uh, so let me let me sketch in a little bit of background for you. Uh, as you know, Jacob and his family went down into Egypt, seventy strong. That was Jacob's family. They settled in uh, Egypt because of the drought in Canaan. They were there for a little better than four hundred years, and during that time. The nation grew immensely. By the most conservative estimates, they were at least a million strong. Some would say two and a half million in, in, uh, in number. And uh, it was Moses' task to lead Israel out of Egypt and into Canaan. Formidable task, to say the least. God opened a way through the Red Sea. They uh, marched through on dry land. They went into the Sinai desert, began their journey to the south. Exodus 14 describes the exodus and the song of redemption that Moses sang, and the very last line of that chapter says that Israel trusted in the Lord, and they trusted in his servant Moses. At least for a few minutes, they did. They went a few thousand yards to the south, and uh, they began to complain and moan and cry and They wanted to go back to Egypt because they ran out of water. They came to a a, a little oasis in the desert. It was then unnamed. It later uh, had the name Mara, bitterness, because uh, they found uh, that though there was water there, it was alkaline, and uh, they couldn't drink it. It 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 was bitter. So they began to complain. They began to cry and weep and wail and moan and tell Moses they wanted to go back, and they begin to challenge his leadership. So Moses did what he always did. He went to the Lord and said, what do I do about this? The Lord said, cut down a tree and throw it in the water. So Moses did that. He chopped down a tree, and he tossed it in the water, and the water turned sweet. Uh, That, for me, is a wonderful illustration of what the tree, the cross, does for us when cast into the the bitterness of our lives. It, It makes it sweet. But for Israel, it actually turned the water into something that was potable, drinkable. They, 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 they could drink it. They could slack their thirst there. So they went a few uh, thousand yards further, and they began to complain again because they ran out of food. They came into the wilderness of Sin, and uh, they, they had 
apparently packed a sack lunch uh, to take along with them. And when they got into the desert, they exhausted their resources. They had no food. To eat. They immediately wanted to go back again. They began to cry and moan and complain and, and gripe about their conditions. And uh, God provided the manna. Uh, this wonderful food from heaven that uh, one of the psalmists describes as the food that made people strong. It was health food, had all the nutrients that you would, you would require. Uh, they could uh, bake it and boil it and fry it and fricassee it and flambe it and whatever you do to food. And, uh, but they didn't like it. They, you know, they didn't like, like the manna. They grew tired of it rapidly. So they made their way on, on down into uh, the area that's called Rephidim, and uh, they're out of water again, and they began to complain, and so God told Moses to strike the rock, and he struck a rock, a flinty, uh, a granitic, hard, non-porous rock, and out poured a copious supply of water for the people, all they needed. And uh, then they made their way down to Sinai, and while Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the law that bound the nation together, the people were down at the bottom of the of the mountain sacrificing around the golden calf. You know the story. And, and that was the story of God's people for two years. They spent the entire time from Egypt to Sinai and the journey up to Kadesh complaining and grumbling and, and moaning and crying and wanting to go back to Egypt. And finally they came to Kadesh. Uh, which was the gateway into the southern part of Canaan. They sent the spies into Canaan. You know the story. Ten spies came back and gave an evil report. Caleb and Joshua, who were, who were with this group of spies, gave the favorable report. They said, we can do it. The ten said, we couldn't do it. The people began to cry, our children will be lost if we take them into Canaan. And they would not, they would not go into the land. And so the Lord said, well, if, if you will not go, then you will not go. And uh, he turned them away from Canaan, and they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years until that whole generation from 20 years up perished in the wilderness. Now, it's that that the psalm is referring back to. They shall never enter my rest. That's a, actually a quotation. You'll notice in most Bibles, verse 11 is in double quotes, which indicates that... Uh, that David is quoting from Numbers 14. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never, under any circumstances, whatever, enter into my rest. Now, I, I think there were a lot of people in that group that perished in the wilderness that were believers in the sense that they put their trust in God. They didn't die eternally. They, they simply died a physical death in the wilderness. Moses, as you know, didn't make it into the land either. He was turned back ultimately. And yet Moses was a man that that followed God with, with all of his heart. So I don't believe that uh, this experience, this death in the desert was spiritual death. It was simply physical death. A whole generation died off. But it was an illustration of what happens to us when we come to the point of stepping into God's rest and we and we turn back. And that's exactly how the psalmist is using this this illustration. The interesting thing about this psalm is that it was written uh, some 500 years after the incident at Kadesh. It was written after Israel had eventually come back to the land of Canaan and they'd conquered the country and they had 
distributed the land and they had settled down and begun to enjoy the rest that God had, had given to them there. 500 years later, David said, you haven't yet entered into rest. Today, if you hear his voice, enter into rest. You see, David understood that this experience in the wilderness was simply an illustration. It was a symbol of some greater reality, the reality of entering into Christ and and submitting to his lordship and enjoying his his presence and walking on with, with him. Now, if you go back to the psalm, I don't have time to go through the psalm with you this morning, but you can do this on your own this afternoon. The psalm is a psalm about worship. And the psalmist gives us three marks of authentic worship. The first is rejoicing. He looks around him at uh, at nature, and it makes him happy. It makes him joyful to see what God has, has created. Uh, we Christians are not nature lovers. We don't worship nature. We look at nature, and it brings joy to us because we realize that our Lord has created all of this. As the psalmist, as Psalm 19 puts it, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Our, our glance, uh, we, we look at nature, and we glance away from nature back to God and give thanks to him. The second part of the psalm from verses, well, verses 6 through halfway through verse 7 have to do with reverence, and the perspective of the psalmist changes somewhat from creation to the one who creates us and the one who is our creator, and uh, that evokes reverence and awe and worship and love, passion for God, a devotion for Him. So worship uh, entails rejoicing, worship entails reverence. And then worship entails a response of obedience to revelation. And it's at this point that the author of Hebrews begins to quote, right in the middle of verse 7, our verse 7 of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did, And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Five hundred years after Israel entered the land, the psalmist says, some may not enter God's rest. You understand what he's doing? He's thinking symbolically of the desert experience, and he's applying it to their pilgrimage from the world into a heartfelt, authentic, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, this phrase, rest, is uh, one that he's going to uh, amplify on through the rest of chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, verse 10, he tells us that anyone who enters God's rest, that is, into God's Canaan rest, God's Sabbath rest, also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Become authentically Christian, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now let me tell you what I think is going on here. And please do not take this as gospel. This is my opinion, okay? And uh, you all think about this carefully and you form your own opinions. But this is the way I look at, at the Christian life. This, this notion of 
moving from Egypt to Canaan has, has always been intriguing to me because uh, it, I, I think there's something in there for us in terms of how we actually become Christians. I think that most of us were probably regenerated either before or after we think we're regenerated. Most of us can look back to some experience where we prayed and asked Christ to come into our life. That may or may not be the time that we became real Christians. It may have been either before that time or after that time. I, I first prayed to ask Christ into my life when I was four years of age. I don't remember the incident, but my mother talked about it so much, uh, I, I'm sure it happened. She tells me that when I was four, she explained the gospel to me, how Jesus had died for my sins, and I, I said I believed that. I recognized that I was a sinner, and I wanted to be saved from my sins. She tells me that I got down on my hands and knees beside my bed, and I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And she wrote in the margin of my Bible, I am his, and he is mine. I don't remember the incident, but I do remember that Bible. I've since lost it. But uh, I remember a number of times turning back to that statement in the margin of the Bible and thinking, well, that's when I became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. I was in a church that went through the Bible every seven years. I had the Bible stamped and tamped and uh, uh, put into my mind irrevocably. I, I was taught the scriptures from the time I was a very small child. Uh, I lived around a family that lived it. I was around Christians a great deal. I, as I've told several of you many times, I had the opportunity to meet some really outstanding Christians as I, as I grew up. They were very often my heroes. Uh, I did very well till I got in college. I never rebelled. I never reacted against any of it. I, I never denied anything that I'd been taught. I believed it. I just believed it. That's all. When I got into college, I didn't rebel against it at all. I just became fairly indifferent. When I was a junior in college, it's probably 20, maybe 21, I started meeting with uh, uh, a man who was very impressive to me. He'd been an RAF pilot during the war, and uh, he began to meet with me and study the scriptures with me. And uh, one day we were sitting in the stands of the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. I went to Southern Methodist University, and I was uh, sitting in the cotton. I don't even remember why I was there. We're sitting in the Cotton Bowl in the stands talking, and he pointed out to me that there was something going on in my life that was contrary to the will of God. It was a relationship that I was involved in. As Ambrose puts it, he was a he was good enough friend to stab me in the front, you know, which is what friends are for. <laughs> And, of course, I knew he was right. I knew he was right. And all of a sudden, I was faced with the issue of making Christ Lord or not. I knew if I was going to go on in obedience to Christ, I had to deal with that issue. I had to. There was no option in my life. Uh, it was difficult to do, but I, I knew that I had to settle the issue at that point. So I did. I did. I decided that I would set this relationship aside, and I would go on with Christ. Now, I, I you know, I've, I sin like everybody else, and I struggle, and I whine, and I cry, and I get mad at God, and I moan, and I blame him for all sorts of things. But for me, the issue was settled, that even though I moan, cry, and whine, and argue with God, and get mad at him, I still have to go on. I can't go back. The issue has been settled in my life. 
Now I ask myself, when did I become a Christian? I don't know. Was it when I was four? I don't know. Was it when I was 21? I don't know. I know I am today because I know the issue is settled in my life. I have decided to follow Jesus. I don't always do it. I mean, you know me well enough to know that. But the issue is settled. I can't go back. I can't turn my back on it because something has happened within. Now, some of you know my son. He spent six years in the Marine Corps. He's a police officer here in Boise now. Uh, I don't know why he went into the Marine Corps. I've always had a lot of respect for uh, Marines, but I don't, I don't know his reason for going in. I think he probably thought it was a macho thing to do. Marines are tough. He wanted to be tough, so he joined the Marines. I think he began to find out uh, very quickly that uh, life in the Marines is not exactly what he thought. You don't always wear that nice uniform. Uh, they don't always do macho things. Sometimes it's just a whole lot of hard work and 20-mile uh, forced marches and all, you know, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And So he went through basic kind of struggling. Do I really want to be a Marine? Yeah, okay, I want to be a Marine. And, and then he went through uh, artillery training. And then they sent him to Korea, and he was trained by a group of Korean commandos. And they are tough little dudes, I'll tell you. And he's telling me about one incident. They uh, they sent him out on a rope bridge. There's a rope about this big around a two-inch hauser that was stretched across a, a gorge. And it was about three or 400 feet straight down into a river. And uh, they had uh, ropes to hang on to the, on the side. And for some reason, Randy stuck out. They had this group of half-scared-to-death Marines. And, and this little Korean captain about this tall pointed Randy and said, You, you, come out here. And so Randy worked his way out there, and there was a rope tied on the on the hauser that went straight down. And the, the, the man couldn't speak English very well. He said, rappel. And Randy said, me? No safety rope, nothing. Yeah, rappel. And Randy said, that's when I decided if I wanted to be a Marine or not. <clears throat> now, if he'd gone over the hill at that point, then I would question from the very beginning whether he really wanted to be a Marine. And you see, that's the way I have to think about Christians who come face to face with some very hard decision they have to make in their life where it becomes crystal clear that Jesus Christ wants to be Lord. If he is Lord, they may complain, they may argue, they may have all sorts of grievances against God, they may get very angry, but the issue's been settled. They have to go on. They can't go back. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about today, if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart like these folks. And that's what I would ask you, and that's what I would ask myself. What is Jesus saying to us today? If we are authentically Christian, if we have truly been regenerated, we will go on, no matter what it costs us. It may hurt a lot. It may mean lonely nights. It may mean long, uh, empty days for a while. But if we truly love him, if he really has our heart, we will go on. Now, this is an individual matter, as he makes it very clear. Verse 12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from, from the living God. This is, I can't do this for you. You can't do it for anyone else. You have to do it for yourself. You have to decide. But there is also a corporate issue, verse 13. Encourage one another daily, as 
long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There is something we can do for one another. We can point out the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is so subtle. We aren't always aware of the issues that we have to face. We're not always sure of what we should be doing. Here's where we can objectify one another's uh, behavior. We can speak honestly and open openly to a brother or sister in Christ and point out where they may be inclined to resist the truth and, and walk away from it. It's why it's so important to hear someone when they come to you and say, are you really facing into this issue in your life? Are, are you willing to... Are you willing to deal with it? Because sin is so deceptive. We need someone outside of ourselves to objectify it for us. Uh, I pointed out before Simone Veal's uh, comment that uh, fictionalized sin always looks so good. Fictionalized evil, uh, fictionalized good always looks so boring and monotonous and empty. You watch Dallas... You watch Falcon Crest, you know, and the people are, I don't, by the way, I hate those shows. But I'm just, I know enough about them to know. Uh, the, you know, these people are really wicked. I mean, J.R. is really a jerk. I mean, he's really wicked. But, oh, it just seems like so much fun. I mean, my goodness, they're having a lot of fun. And when you're wealthy, you can have even more fun being wicked. Uh, wealth enables you to, to, to glamorize, glorify sin a bit more. Because you can do all sorts of mean things, but you do it in a nice environment. And you look nice while you're doing it. <laughs> but you see, that's what you see on the screen. And those of you that live like that or have lived like that know the emptiness, the pain, the hurt, the anguish that comes from, from living that way. And in truth, real sin is always hurtful. Uh, real righteousness is always invigorating and exciting and fulfilling satisfying, see. But sin doesn't always appear that way. It's very deceptive. It's easy to get sucked into it and to get sucked under before we realize it. Alexander Pope has a a little poem that goes like this. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated as to be seen, yet seen too often. Familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. We get drawn in. It's the same thing David is talking about in Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scornful. You see the progress? Walking, standing, sitting. First we behave. We're influenced by their behavior to behave as they do. And then we're influenced by their counsel to believe as they do. And then we are influenced to belong. We sit down and we're, we're one of them. Sin creeps up on us, gets us, and that's why we need someone to help us out, to objectify sin for us. And that's why he calls us to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I hope we're doing that for one another. I hope you're doing it for me. I want to be able to do that for you. We, we want you to do that for, for one another, because we need it. Uh, Hebrews makes much of the fact that we're running a race together and people are going to fall down. Well, you don't step on your brother when he falls down. You pick him up, you encourage him, you get him going, you get, get her going again, you see. Uh, we have to encourage one another on to righteousness. And then in verse 14, 
He says it needs to be done now. Don't put it off. Don't wait until you have one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel. Do it now. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firm till the end the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said, referring back to the passages quoted today, do it today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What is Jesus saying to you today? What's he saying to me? Well, if we really belong to him, we won't harden our hearts. We'll do what he asks us to do. By his grace, by his strength, we will obey. Now, in his closing uh, verses, he raises three rhetorical questions. Who, with whom, and to whom? Verse 14, who were they uh, who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? Uh, Literally, were unpersuadable. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their... Their unbelief. They were sinful. They were unpersuadable. They were unbelieving. They did not enter into rest. Who were these folks with whom God was so angry? Were the ones who saw his works? Who saw him provide water out of flinty rock? Who saw him turn uh, the bitterness of Mara into, into sweetness? Who saw him provide manna? Who, who had God's blessings rain down on them day after day after day? They had tasted the goodness of God. But they never entered in. They never opened their hearts to him. But what he's, he's simply saying is possible to maintain a facade for a long period of time, to look very good, to teach Bible studies, to share your faith, to lead people to Christ, to be a faithful attender, to be on church committees, uh, to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to go on and on and on with Christ to a certain point. But there's underneath a hard layer of resistance and rebellion to God's will. And, and these People maintain the outward appearances of being genuinely regenerated, but down deep inside there's a layer of resistance, and they will not, they will not submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, he's not talking about people who argue with God. We do that. I do that. I don't like a lot of what he asks me to do. I get real upset with him. That's all right. You know, the psalmist does that over and over again. He is very angry with God. Tells God exactly what he's thinking and how unfair things seem to be. But then he goes on and does what God asked him to do. And that's the test. Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hearts are like wet cement. We keep resisting, resisting, resisting. And after a while, our hearts are so hard. The seed cannot penetrate at all. A number of illustrations in the Old and New Testament of of this principle. I think of... uh, Esau and Jacob. Of those two, who do you like better? Oh, Esau comes off as a much nicer person than Jacob. Jacob's a real rascal. And Esau is the one that kept getting conned. He's the one who his brother worked him over about every six months or so. And uh, Jacob comes across as a schemer and a conniver and a dreamer and someone who never quite got his feet on the ground until the very end. But there is a radical difference between those two. Esau sold his birthright. And even though, as Hebrews puts it, he he sought a place of repentance, he didn't find it because his heart was never changed. He only repented because he he, he was feeling the consequences of his sin, but he never really wanted to submit to God. 
On the other hand, Jacob, who comes across as a very unrighteous man, all through his life, hungered for God. He wanted God in his life. And in the end, God had to break his leg, as you know, to get his attention. But he, but he finally gave in. And after that long night of rolling in the dust and fighting with the man, as, as, as the book of Genesis puts it, he, he, he finally gave in. He gave in to God. Because in his heart, he wanted what God wanted. See, that's the issue. Have we got a hard heart? Or do we have a soft heart? And there's uh, Peter and, and Judas. And both of them betrayed the Lord. But in the end, Judas turned away. Killed himself out of remorse. Again, he, he, lost, he lost out in life. He suffered the terrible consequences of his deeds, but his heart was never changed. Peter, on the other hand, when Jesus looked at him, just just fell apart, just broke into tears, broke down, wept, because uh, he, he really wanted what, what the Lord wanted in his life. And more recently, I think of, uh, I think of two men, a man by the name of Gerhard Kittle, whom I'm sure none of you know, and someone who's a little better known, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They're both Germans. They're both scholars. They were contemporaries. They're both highly regarded in Germany. Um, Kittel wrote a ten-volume theological dictionary of the New Testament. This is the first volume. Uh, you wouldn't want to read it, and you certainly wouldn't want to drop it on your toe. Um, there are ten of these. Actually, they get thicker as you go along. This is the first and uh, they get uh, more ponderous as he uh, as he wrote. It seems to be a characteristic of German scholarship. And uh, this is, without question, the definitive work on New Testament words. Anyone who does scholarly work in the New Testament goes back to Kittle. He took every word in the Greek New Testament and traced its origins back through classical Greek literature. He looked up, it, it just took years and years and years of scholarly effort to produce this thing. Finally produced it. Ten volumes. Never gave his heart to Jesus. He heard the words, but he never gave his heart to Christ. The issue for Kittle was scholarship. You see, he he uh, he taught while Hitler was coming to power, and no one who was an evangelical and who who professed real faith in Christ could make it very far in scholarly circles back then. So he sold out. He sold out to Hitler. He became a Nazi, an anti-Semitist. In the end of his life, he began to write hate-filled literature against the Jews. This man knew the New Testament better than any of us will ever know it. Probably better than anyone will ever know it. He knew the words of the New Testament. He heard Jesus' voice. But he never submitted to it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you know, faced the same, same issue. And he ended up in prison for his faith. And as a matter of fact, in prison, he lost his faith for a period of time. He just felt God had abandoned him. And if you've read his letters 
from prison, you know that he struggled and struggled with what seemed to be the injustice of his life. He'd given his heart to Christ and God had not been fair with him. But at the very end, he came back and as he was being led away to be hanged by, by Hitler's goons, uh, his last words to his, his cellmate were, this is not the ending, uh, this is not the end, this is just the beginning. And there's two men, both of whom knew the words of Jesus. One believed and one did not. I'll tell you another story. Take your hymn books out and turn to page, to hymn number 35. This hymn was written by Robert Robinson. He's probably not well known to you because this is the only hymn that he wrote, as far as we know. Uh, at least it's the only hymn that's found in any of our hymn books. I uh, looked in all the hymn books that I have at my disposal this week, and I found this is the only hymn that, of his that's extant. Uh, let me tell you about the, a little bit about this man. Uh, when he was 11 years of age, his mother sent him to London to learn to be a barber. Um, he actually, when he got to London, he decided to party. And so he gave himself to uh, what we would call profligate living through his teen years. He apprenticed himself to a barber. He actually became a barber. Didn't really want to be a barber. Didn't know what to do with his life. Was playing around with the occult and went to a fortune teller. And uh, he got her drunk. He started her drinking uh, grog, and he got her drunk so she would give him a favorable uh, reading. And she said to him in her drunken state, you will live to see your grandchildren. You know, well, that's great. Uh, walked out the door, and suddenly it dawned on him that he might die the very next day. He had never thought about death. So he began to wonder about his own Mortality and fuss and fret about that. And uh, he was walking through the streets of London and he heard George Whitfield preach. Whitfield, you know, preached out of doors to vast crowds. Whitfield was preaching. And he gave his heart to Christ. He was 23 years of age. Prayed, asked Christ to come into his life. Standing in the back of the crowd, I don't think anybody knew that he had made that commitment. But he gave his, he gave his heart to the Lord. He went back and he wrote, wrote this hymn. Let me read it to you. Verse 1. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm Fixed upon it, man of thy redeeming love. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. He wrote that hymn when he was 23 years of age. He turned his back on God and walked away from his relationship with God. And for years, no one would have ever guessed that he was a Christian. He had no interest whatever in spiritual things. None. Didn't read the Bible. 
didn't uh, consort with Christians. He apostatized, as we would say today. He turned his back on the living God. Uh, it had to do with some issue in his life, I understand. We're not told what it was, but God was speaking to him, and he decided he did not want to go on. We're told one day he was on board ship crossing the channel from England to France. Saw a very pretty young lady sitting in a deck chair, decided this is my chance. He sat down next to her. They began to strike up a conversation, discovered to his uh, uh, chagrin that she was a Christian. She said, oh, and I just heard the most wonderful hymn. May I sing it to you? Guess what she sang. His hymn, which was in circulation by that time. And uh, as he tells the story, he just buried his face in his hands and began to weep. And he realized that God was the hand of heaven who had tracked him down. Uh, you know, there are no, as I, as I often say, there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. There are no accidents. Nothing happens by chance. You know, God was reaching out to this man. And, and I asked myself, was he a Christian during that time he apostatized? Or he had said, take my heart, O take and seal it. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know that he would know. Only God knows. But the point is, when the chips were down, he made the decision to follow Christ. He made a decision sitting in that deck chair. From this point on, he was going to follow Christ. He went back to London. He began to pastor a church there, a large Baptist church. And he lived on until he was 54 years of age, ministering to people in the city of, of London. Now, I don't know where he was spiritually during that pilgrimage. But I have to ask myself the question, what if he were sitting in that deck chair and she sang that hymn to him and he hardened his heart and walked away from that? I'd have to say he probably never never had been regenerated. Maybe there'll be other chances down a ways, you know, down through his life where he'll have a chance again because I don't think God ever gives up on us. But if we keep hardening our heart, it's an indication that our hearts were never soft to begin with. But once we give our hearts to Christ, as rebellious as they are, and we say, here's my heart, take and seal it, and we give him that soft heart, he begins to plant the seed and in the heart, begins to grow. We have to go on. See? We have to go on. That's the test. So I would just, uh, this morning, raise the question for you and for me, the question that he raises today. Do you hear his voice? What's he saying? And we need to listen and obey. Let's pray. Father, that you should even bother to track us down is amazing to us. Out of all the people in the world, you really care enough not only to send your son, but to keep reaching out to us and wanting us so desperately that you'll do anything, hemming us in, cornering us, bringing us to the end of ourselves, bringing us into contact with, with people who know you and, and love you and who are willing to risk their friendship with us in order to reach out to us. Thank you for doing that. And when we hear your word, we don't want to harden our hearts as these people did in the wilderness and turn back from rest. We want to go in. We want to go on with you into the into the fullness of life that you have promised for us. 
Help us to remember this truth when we're inclined to cut moral corners in order to make more money or when we're unwilling to deal with an unforgiving spirit or a self-pitying attitude, when you speak to us about our lovelessness and our lack of compassion for the weak and the lost and the lonely around us, we, we just want to respond with a soft heart. It's very, it's very hard for us, Lord. We, we have stubborn wills, but we thank you that you're the one who is both willing and doing in order to accomplish your purpose. Thank you for never, never giving up on us, for hounding us and haunting us until we're willing to, to listen to your words. And if there's anyone here with an evil, unbelieving heart, a hardness that the seed cannot penetrate, we would ask for a softening of that heart, a willingness to see that you only ask what is ultimately good for us. It's not your intention to make life less meaningful and more restrictive, but rather to lead us into freedom and liberty and joy. Thank you for this reminding word. We thank you in Jesus' name.